Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I heard this comment when it was first broadcast on the news and then had to um, go searching for it as part of uh, my newly continuing feature, foot completely in mouth. But uh, here he is, the recently elected Republican governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, talking about, just for a moment, just for the merest moment, talking about slavery. And I think what we all recognize is that slavery was an absolute, it was an absolute um, black spot in our history. I'm, I'm just guessing now, but I would think that uh, the governor would suggest that the um, deliberate wipeout of the vast majority of Native Americans in this country was a red spot on our country's history. And now, news of the war. Won't you? No, I mean, really, won't you? Right now? Soft, listen to the war. We can listen to the war. Okay, there's good news, there's bad news. Which do you want first? Good first. Okay, fair enough. If you were worried about the fact that you might not ever get the chance to have a tiger, a wild tiger, bite your head off, relax. There are 40% more tigers in the wild than previously thought. About as many as um, 5,578, although they do remain an endangered species. This is Agence France Presse, quoting a leading conservation group. The jump in numbers was due not to improved mating. No, tigers are doing it like they always do. No, it's uh, due to improved monitoring. Population is thought to be stable or increasing, according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Habitat protection projects showed that uh, recovery is possible. That's the usage they they now favor in um, all the pharmaceutical ads on TV. Recovery is possible. It's the same kind of passive voice they use for the side effects, which have occurred. We don't know. Well, you know, they've, they have occurred. But re- re- recovery is possible. There are thought to be between 3,700 3, and 5,500 wild tigers, 40% more than the last assessment in 2015. The uh, tiger remains endangered, but the population trend indicates that projects such as the IUCN's Integrated Tiger Habitat Conservation Program are succeeding, and recovery is possible, has happened, as long as conservation efforts continue, said the organization. Major threats to uh, the creatures at this point, the species, include poaching, grilling, no, uh, poaching and hunting of their prey, and habitat destruction due to agriculture and human settlement. Expanding and connecting protected areas, ensuring they're effectively managed, and working with local communities living in and around tiger habitats are critical to protect the species. 
According to the World Wildlife Fund, wild tiger numbers have started to recover after a century of decline in the major habitats. India, your India, your Nepal, your Bhutan, your Russia, and your China. The reassessment of tiger numbers came as the uh, IUCN updated its red list of threatened species. That's the world's most comprehensive information source on the survival status of plants, animals, and fungi, assessing the risk of extinction. Now the bad news. The migratory monarch butterfly is now classified as an endangered species on the red list due to climate change and habitat destruction. And all surviving sturgeon species, except for Nicola, are now at risk of extinction due to dams and poaching. So, you win some, you lose some. You lose some butterflies and sturgeon, you gain some tigers. What a wonderful world. Hello, welcome to the show. This is Le Show, and uh, I was just before uh, starting this program sitting with uh, Duke, 
my cat, my black cat, our cat, who's another person involved in this relationship, and uh, he was making a sound that made me think he was feeling something. You know how cats do that purr thing. And um, we kind of assume that that's telling us something about their their state of mind, if they have such a thing. Well, on the line with me today is someone who can shed light, maybe not on Duke, but on the whole subject of emotions in people and animals, is the author of uh, a new book, The Nature of the Beast, um, a study of emotions in people and um, animals, since we can cut up animals. We can't cut up people unless we're uh, Saudi princes. He is uh, <laughs> David Anderson, Seymour Benzer Professor of Biology and Director of the Chen Institute of Neuroscience at Caltech, California Institute of Technology, just right over near the uh, near the Rose Bowl, and he's also Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator and a member of the Amer National Academy of Sciences, and uh, an all-around smart guy. David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Harry. Pleasure to be here. So, um, what are emotions? Emotions mean something different depending on whether we use the word in colloquial speech or whether we use it scientifically. And uh, in colloquial speech, we use the word emotion to refer to a feeling, a subjective experience that we have. Um, and that's a private experience. The only way we can know if another person is having a similar experience is to ask them how they feel. And because they're a person and people can talk, then they can reply and say, I feel angry or I feel afraid. But I don't really know when you tell me that, that you're feeling the same thing that I'm feeling. So when we're Working as scientists, uh, neuroscientists, unless we're studying human beings who can talk, there's no way to access subjective feeling from an animal. We may assume that the animal has a feeling. I, I assume that my cat is purring because she's happy. When mm -hmm. I come home, I take off my scientist hat. I put on my pet lover hat mm -hmm. and i'm sure i know how my cat is feeling maybe, and I, maybe, maybe he maybe he or she just likes your hat that's right and i i i've disabused myself of the fact that uh she climbs up on my lap because she wants to be close to me she's just a heat-seeking cat and my lap is warm <laughs> and that's why she so you know you can be wrong mm -hmm. if you project a feeling anthropomorphically onto an animal. So as, as a neuroscientist, when I use the word emotion, if you think of emotion as an iceberg and feeling is just the tip of the iceberg that's exposed above the sea of our consciousness, we're interested in studying and we call emotion the part of the iceberg that is under the surface, which is huge. Mm. And we can't access that as a subjective feeling state. So right now we don't worry about the question because we can't ask an animal how it feels. But there are a lot of other things that we can investigate scientifically to tell whether an animal has some sort of internal state that is expressed by a particular behavior or vocalization or whether it's just showing a robotic automatic reflex. And I think people have no trouble accepting that 
for cats and dogs. Mm -hmm. But I think if you told somebody that a fly jumping away from a swatter, what is that? Most people would say, oh, that's just a robotic reflex. They wouldn't necessarily attribute a feeling of fear to the fly. On the other hand, if we're sitting at a picnic table and a swarm of quote unquote, angry bees comes over, we have no trouble attributing some internal state to them. So we're, we're trying to make this something that is not fuzzy, but something that we can actually rigorously investigate and develop a set of criteria, first of all, to see if we can distinguish by looking at an animal's behavior, whether it's just showing a robotic reflex or whether there's some internal state that is driving it. And you can think of state as a hydraulic analogy. It's sort of water pressure inside that is building up and causing something to come out, a behavior, a vocalization, or something like that. But what states really are scientifically is that they're patterns of electrical and chemical activity in the brain that change how our brain interprets the information that comes into it from the outside world and turns around and acts on that information. And so we can interpret the same information and act very differently depending on our state. If, if I haven't eaten in two days because I've been lost in the woods and you show me a plate with cold french fries lying in a puddle of congealed grease, I'm going <laughs> to eat it ravenously. <laughs> but if I just finished the meal, you show me the same stimulus and I react in disgust. That's that's an example of a state. So a, a state is connected to a conscious feeling or not? We don't know the answer to that yet? What we surmise, and we don't know the answer, is that a conscious feeling, so humans have these states, animals have these states, and we surmise that in humans, Subjective feelings are one of the outputs or the readouts mm -hmm. of these states. Mm -hmm. There are other readouts that you can measure, like an increase in your heart rate, an increase in your blood pressure, if you're aroused or angry, sweaty palms, if you're anxious. Um, we're not saying that we don't we don't believe that animals have these subjective feelings. They may well do, but we have no way of measuring it because we have that requires consciousness. And until we have a scientific way to identify and measure consciousness in an animal, we treat feeling as a part of consciousness and it's out of the equation of what we can study. But the part that's not conscious under the ocean of the iceberg is a huge amount to study there. And in fact, even humans have unconscious emotions. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've experienced this, but sometimes somebody will, my wife will look at me and say, what's wrong? And I'll say, what do you mean, what's wrong? And she'll say, well, you have this expression on your face. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I think about it in introspect, yeah, maybe I'm a little annoyed about something or upset. I'm completely unaware of the expression on my face, but she can see that. And these studies, studies in the lab have actually documented this, that humans can have emotional reactions or be in emotion states that they're not conscious of. So if that's true for humans, why shouldn't it be true at least for animals that are evolutionarily close to us, like our furry friends? And maybe even parts of that are true in animals that are more distant, like a fruit fly or a honeybee or uh, something like that. 
It's, it strikes me that, that we're in a, a new phase that we, we went through, we humans, went through a phase where we anthropomorphized like crazy. Oh, this animal is acting this way. It must be feeling this way because we would uh, to a, a moment where we reacted against that by let's not anthropomorphize. These are not like us. We invented this whole range of behaviors that never existed before on the planet Earth both fairly extreme attitudes to now somewhere where we're according animals the right to have something called emotion states, if not emotions, right? And yep. this is phase three of our adventure with all of this in that sense. I, I guess so. And the, and the hope is, and I'll tell you why this is so important, this question. If If you take the position that emotions equal feelings, as some some people in the field, such as Joe Ledoux at NYU and Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's written a famous book about this, take that position. It follows that you can only study it in human beings because you have to ask the subject how they feel. Mm -hmm. And that means if we're going to study emotion in humans, we can only put them in brain scanners. And all we can do in a brain scanner is look at correlation. The patient says, the subject says, I feel afraid, and there's some hot spot in the brain, in the amygdala, that lights up. But correlation doesn't imply causation. So we don't know if that means that the brain activity is a cause of the feeling of fear or is an effect of the feeling of fear. The feeling of fear could just be causing the brain activity. So imagine we were trying to develop a better drug for PTSD or anxiety and phobias, and we decided that to target the amygdala just based on all of these brain scanning experiments without knowing if it's a cause or a consequence of the fear. If its activity is a consequence of the fear, then it's not going to help us to target that brain activity with this drug because the fear already happened. It's mm -hmm. upstream if mm -hmm. you use a river analogy. So that means that we need to understand cause and effect if we ever want to develop real medicines, better medicines for psychiatry. For example, in, in the body, in the pancreas, once we learned that that there was such a thing as insulin mm -hmm. and that diabetics didn't have enough insulin, voila, it suggested a treatment. Give them more insulin, and we did, and that worked. There isn't a single psychiatric drug that was developed based on that method of understanding cause and effect uh, because they've all been found by accident. What we can do in animals that we can't do in humans is that we can do invasive experiments. And some of your listeners may say, well, there isn't a good ethical justification for that. And that's a separate discussion. But as it stands now, as the National Institutes of Health and the world scientific community and many people accept it in animals, we can delve into their brain with tools that will turn neurons on, turn neurons off, kill certain neurons, activate other neurons and image those neurons. And the importance of the turning on and off is it gives us causality. If I think that a certain neuron or group of neurons in a mouse brain is 
producing a fear state. I now have ways I can go into that animal's brain and using fancy genetic techniques that involve light, I can turn those neurons on with blue light shining out of an optic fiber placed in its brain and see if that makes the mouse freeze like it's afraid or jump. And we've done that experiment. We can also do the same trick, except we shine yellow light and the yellow light turns those neurons off. And so in that experiment, we take a natural threat for the mouse, like a big rat, and we put it near the mouse, and the mouse normally runs into the corner of the cage and freezes. And if we turn those neurons off, the mouse approaches the rat and climbs around the cage that is protecting the rat from the mouse and tries to make friends with him or see who he is. So that is causality. When we get results like that, geneticists in particular say this group of neurons is sufficient to trigger a fear state or a fear behavior mm -hmm. when they're activated. Of course, not in a vacuum. You need the rest of the brain and the body, of course. And they're also necessary for that similar kind of behavior to be triggered by a natural stimulus. And we've done that for fear. We've done that for aggression. We've done that for mating. Other people have done this for hunger, for thirst. And so we have now a good, we're starting to get a good, of a, good idea of what are the neurons that are the key hubs in the brain's network for controlling a state like anxiety. And if we can figure those out, with current technology, we'll know soon whether at least the same kinds of neurons exist in the human brain and express the same kinds of genes. Now, we're not going to be able to put fiber optic cables in a human's brain, yet. even to treat them for a disease yet. But <laughs> uh, we, we can develop, in principle, approaches to treat these disorders that are based on turning specific neurons on and off rather than using a drug like Prozac that targets 15 different kinds of receptors that are expressed on tens of millions of neurons all over the brain. And the hope is that by doing that, we could ameliorate and say an exaggerated fear or phobia state without having all of the side effects mm -hmm. that many of the anxiolytic drugs, benzodiazepines make you sleepy, SSRIs kill your sex drive. We, we need something better than that. But I think as a basic scientist, until we understand how these emotion circuits actually work in the brain, we're not gonna be able to do better than lucky accidents. And we can only figure this cause and effect game out if we work in animals, in mice, in fruit flies, in zebrafish larvae, in all kinds of, uh, of animals, that some of which are closer to humans and some of which are more distant. Um, what you were, the, the couple of things on what you were just saying, um, the use of light as a stimulant, uh, one way or another, that's what you, there's a word you use in the book to describe that, I believe, optogenetics. Yes, that's right. And, and that's a fairly recent development, is it? As opposed to electricity, um, electric, electric it, stimulation? Yes, it's fairly recent. It's, it's, uh, it was first reported in 2005 uh, by um, Carl Dyseroth and Ed Boyden at Stanford. Um, what it is, is 
a way that you can activate neurons uh, in the brain using light. Now, you can say, why would you want to do that? People have been activating uh, the brain with electrodes and metal electrodes for decades. They gave a Nobel Prize for this. People get treatment for Parkinson's disease and OCD with deep brain stimulation, DBS. Why do we need optogenetics? Um, The problem with using metal electrodes is that they're not specific. They activate everything millions of neurons in the region where you stick the electrode. Mm. And we now know that even a relatively small volume of brain, like a one millimeter by one millimeter by one millimeter cube of cortex, contains at least a 100 different kinds of neurons. And some of those neurons might promote a certain behavior. Some of them might inhibit a behavior. And so if you just squirt electricity into that area of the brain, you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So the reason for developing optogenetics, and there's a related method called chemogenetics using a chemical, is what what we're trying to do is electrically excite neurons, not by injecting electricity into the brain, but by injecting a different form of energy, either light energy or the energy of a chemical binding to its receptor on a neuron, and let the cell convert that other kind of energy into electricity because we've genetically programmed that cell type and just that cell type to have the conversion machinery. So in the case of optogenetics, the conversion machinery, and this is just such a beautiful example of basic curiosity-driven science having a major impact on science and potentially human health. Um, There is a blue-green alga that many people may have heard about in their high school biology class called Chlamydomonas. It swims towards the light. It's a single-celled organism. The reason it swims toward the light is because it evolved a protein in its outer membrane, this sort of bubble-like thing that surrounds it, which responds to blue light and opens a pore in that outer membrane that lets electrically charged ions flow back and forth across the cell. And that, in turn, powers that cell to swim towards the light. And it turns out, with genetic engineering techniques using viruses, we can now take that gene from that single-celled alga, and we can insert it into any cell pretty much any cell type we want to in the brain of a mouse or the brain of a fly or the brain of a zebrafish. We can use genetic zip codes to program just that cell. So now if you imagine that cubic millimeter of cortex out of the hundred different kinds of neurons that are there, we have imbued only one of those kinds of neurons with the ability to respond to blue light by opening up an ion channel. The wonderful thing is that the protein, which is called channel rhodopsin, it doesn't care whether it's sitting in the membrane of a single-celled alga or in the membrane of a neuron that's one out of 100 billion neurons in the human brain. It gets blue light, 
it does its thing. It opens a pore in the membrane and bang, light gets converted into electric current flowing across the neuron membrane. It fires the neuron and we're off to the races. And there are other versions that will actually close a pore in the membrane so that if the neuron was already firing, it will shut it down, say in response to yellow light. So the opto part of optogenetics is that we're using light, light of specific wavelengths to activate neurons. The genetics part is that we're using our knowledge of molecular biology and gene expression to direct the ability to activate neurons with light to a specific class of neurons somewhere in the brain. And in fact, in fruit flies, we've done experiments where we can direct this to a single neuron out of the 100,000 neurons in the fly brain and activating just that one neuron, well, it's two because there's one on each side of the brain, is enough to make the flies start to fight. So that's the level of specificity that you can get. And the importance of this technique was recognized in 2021 by uh, uh, Alaska Award in Basic Medical Science to Carl Dyseroff from Stanford, to Peter, ha Peter Hageman in Germany, who discovered this protein in the alga. He was the person working on Chlamydomonas, and uh, to another person as well. And it's very likely to win a Nobel Prize, many people think. Uh, Alaska Award is sort of a precursor to a Nobel Prize. And so this technology has had an explosive impact on being able to do research on to, to take apart neural circuits and understand their causal function in all kinds of animals. But we can't use it in humans because we don't know what long-term expression of these algal proteins would do to a human being. Wouldn't make us smarter, I would think. If we put it in the right neurons, Maybe. we could also put it in the wrong neurons, and that would make us dumber. Yeah. Well, anything from an alga, would, I would think, would make us dumber. But <laughs> maybe the algae, maybe the algae have a different opinion. Um, let me ask you a real dumb question that I was having. I do have problems with with regard to this realm. I don't know relative sizes, so. Huh. What size is a neuron? Very good. Um, a a neuron neurons vary in size from about two microns in a fruit fly, which is about the size of a bacterium, just to put it in a frame of mm -hmm. reference, mm -hmm. to ten or twenty microns in a mouse, which is about the si size of an amoeba, relatively speaking, and they're even a little bit bigger in humans. Now, some species have some giant neurons. They're close to a, a millimeter uh, uh, or, or at least several hundred microns in diameter, but those are very, very rare. Uh, most of these neurons, and I'm talking about the cell body, Mm -hmm. Now, the, the nerve, the neuron cell body has these fibers emanating from it axons. that connect axons, and they send the signal out, and dendrites are on the opposite side of the cell. They pick up whatever's being broadcast to them from other neurons in the brain or the outside world, and they take that information and relay it to the cell, which then fires uh, action potentials along the axon. And if you look in the motor cortex of a giraffe and you look 
at the nerve cell in the giraffe's cortex that is going down and innervating the area of the spine that controls the legs, mm -hmm. that can be you know 15 feet long, if not longer. So axons uh, can be extremely long. And that's a lot of, you know, energy and work for a cell to maintain uh, a structure like that for the lifetime of an animal. And what is the speed at which messages are delivered down a giraffe's axon? Oh, boy. Um, I used to know the answer to that question. It's very uh, fast, right? I mean, it's it not, is very it, fast. It doesn't approach the speed of light, does it? No, 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 no. Probably it's on the order of... Um, less than a second, I would say several hundred milliseconds, because those axons are coated in a fatty sheath called myelin, mm -hmm. which is essentially like uh, electrical insulation, and it makes them conduct much faster by preventing the current from leaking out of the axon along its length at intermediate places. You can tell the difference between the conduction velocity of myelinated and unmyelinated axons um, by comparing what happens, say, if you accidentally hit your thumb with a hammer and you feel immediate pain. Mm -hmm. But you stub your toe and sometimes you can actually notice there's like a second or two between the time you stubbed your toe and the time that you're actually feeling something. And that's because the axons that detect the toe stubbing don't have that electrical insulation mm. around them and are very thin because you don't want to activate them unless something really bad has happened to the body. But something not so bad happens, you can count. It takes, you know, a second or so before you feel the stubbed toe. I notice that uh, if I'm putting my hands accidentally on a hot pan when I'm cooking, it's like I, I get a sense of, a, of something before I get a sense of, oh, that's hot. That's right. Very important. So that's, that's the difference between what people that work on pain call the sensory or discriminative action of pain. That is the part that tells you this is hot and it's not cold or it's not rough like sandpaper mm -hmm. and it's very hot. Um, and then the so-called effective aspect of pain, which is the part of pain that hurts. <laughs> now, if, if you think about it, if, if you're a, a strict materialist, like I am, the nerve cells in the brain that control the subjective experience of pain are made up of the same kinds of lipids and proteins as the cells along your spine that detect the heat coming from the surface of the stove. There's, as my, as my colleague and friend Christoph Koch, who thinks about consciousness and has written several books on it, says, if you think about it, there's no reason why electricity flowing across the fatty membrane of a neuron and making it fire these electrical potentials should feel like anything. Why should that feel like anything? It's just ions flowing across 
cell membranes. And that is the fundamental mystery at the basis of consciousness and subjective feeling that we don't understand. And there are people that are trying to come up with uh, various types of, of hypotheses to explain it, but it's a, it's a very difficult thing. Nevertheless, using optogenetics and other types of tools, we can clearly separate in, uh, an, in a mouse, for example, the neurons that control the discriminative sensory part of pain, the neurons that detect heat or the neurons that detect uh, a rough surface um, from the neurons that control unpleasant states that are produced by the pain. Hmm. Now, what we've been talking about so far is location of various functions of the brain. Um, you mentioned in the book uh, three in particular that maybe we should talk a little bit more about the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the hypothalamus. Right. What's the difference between among them? Okay, so the I'll start um, with the general idea uh, that there is a part of the brain that mainly engages your cortex. And that's the part that we're supposed to think with and navigate with. And the hippocampus is really just kind of a part of the cortex. It lies right next to the cortex, and it's very strongly interconnected with the cortex. Um, the amygdala and the hypothalamus are in the brain regions that are deeper, that is, they're closer down towards the the palate of your the roof of your mouth at the base of the brain they're called subcortical structures they are very evolutionarily ancient you can identify an amygdala or a hypothalamus in a larval zebrafish they're conserved among vertebrates um and those areas amygdala and hypothalamus have been implicated in controlling internal states that produce what we believe are in humans subjective conscious experiences like fear or anger or lust. That, that doesn't mean that those neurons are sufficient to produce those feelings. Although when we stimulate them with optogenetics in an animal, we can produce the kind of behaviors like freezing that you would observe in a human who was subjective would subjectively report to you that they're feeling fear or they're feeling panic. But they are in different locations. And I guess the difference, one difference between the amygdala and the hypothalamus, and I'm exaggerating here, but just to clarify it, is the the hypothalamus really controls innate responses. Animals don't really have to learn how to mate, not even fruit flies, not even mice. They don't have to learn how to fight, uh, although they can improve their fighting and their mating with experience. But they don't have to have a specific training to show those behaviors. That's happening in the hypothalamus. In the amygdala, it's clear that the amygdala can allow us to glue together through experience a state like fear, 
that is produced by something we are innately afraid of, like a snake, with something innocuous, like a green blanket. Uh, if every time somebody showed you a green blanket, a rattlesnake jumped out at you and they did that enough times, this is like Pavlov's dog, mm -hmm. eventually when they showed you a green blanket, you're going to tense up because you're expecting a snake to jump out at you. And it's the amygdala that glues together the innate, the innately uh, 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 evoked fear component and the the stimulus that is normally innocuous and which can be made to produce a feeling of fear by associating it repeatedly. So the amygdala is like our own little Skinner box. Yeah, it's our own little, except that's a, that's a, you raise a subtle point there. So what I was describing is Pavlovian learning, you associative learning. Mm -hmm. You ring the bell right. and you give the dog some meat. You pair bell, meat, bell, meat. The animal doesn't have to do anything. Mm. It just has to hear the bell and it gets the reward and learn that the bell predicts the reward. A Skinner box tests a slightly more sophisticated type of learning called reinforcement learning, where, you know, if you have several different things you could be doing and you do one of them and nothing much happens and you do something else and you get a good feeling from it, you're going to keep doing the thing that made you feel good. Pressing and the that's lever. Basically, pr pressing yeah, pressing the lever, the lever yeah. you get a food reward or a water reward. And that's what the Skinner box does. Let me ask you um, sort of a, I think it's a goofy question. Um, in no your, question is goofy. Your, Believe me, no question is goofy. Only, only a cartoon dog from Disney. Um, <laughs> in your book, you talk a lot about fear and aggression, particularly as two central emotion states. Yes. Um, do people in your field in neuroscience not do any experiments involving joy? Uh, excellent question. Um, it's harder to, but not impossible, uh, to study um, positive uh, emotions. People, a lot of people study reward in the context of drug addiction, and that's where this idea of dopamine being a reward molecule comes from. Animals will learn to press a lever to get dollops of dopamine released into their brain. Now, whether that means that the animal is feeling joy, we can't really say, because we don't know what that would look like, but certainly we would call it a positively valenced internal state, mm -hmm. motivated state. The animal keeps doing something not because it makes it feel bad, but because it makes it feel good or feel less bad than it did before. Now, innate joy or happiness, uh, there's been an attempt to study that by the late Yak Panksep, who was a, a great student of animal emotions and animal states. And he used ultrasonic microphones to detect vocalizations made by adolescent rats, because rats and mice and other rodents emit all kinds of vocalizations 
basically singing at frequencies that we can't hear with our own ears, but you can have special microphones mm -hmm. that detect them. And rats, for example, emit a very characteristic vocalization at 22 kilohertz when you show them a threat. And that's led people to think that that is a rat's alarm call. And we're all used to this in watching documentaries on Africa. The monkey's up in a tree. It sees a predator coming and it vocalizes. Or you hear this from birds or squirrels in your backyard. Mm -hmm. um, that's a negatively valence vocalization. Panksepp found that if he got these juvenile rats used to being handled, so he habituated them, and then he started stroking them on their ventral surface, the tummy, mm -hmm. they would start emitting vocalizations at a different frequency from the alarm vocalizations. And beyond that, he seemed to think that the rats liked it because they didn't struggle and squirm mm -hmm. and try to get away and out of his hand when he was doing that. And so that might be a first step into uh, detecting something that is pleasant or joyful. In fact, we discovered um, by accident a group of neurons in the spine, alongside the spine, which innervate the skin uh, in mice and probably in people too. They innervate hairy skin. And unlike all the pain sensing neurons that are activated by a, a, a flame or a pinprick, these neurons are activated by massage like stroking mm. of animals' fur. And in fact, if you activate these neurons artificially, you, we, we use chemogenetics, lycoptogenetics, but it's just a chemical. And you do that when they're in one chamber of a three-chambered box. And the two chambers, the rat can tell, the mouse can tell them apart because they have different smells, different textures, mm -hmm. different stripes on the walls. Um, you do that uh, and you do it repeatedly. So there's no stroking here. You just activate these stroke-sensitive neurons every time the mouse is on one side of the box. And now you take it out and you wait 10, 15, 20 minutes, even an hour. You put the mouse back in. You don't do anything to it. It will naturally gravitate to the side of the box where those neurons were activated. And if you do that with the kinds of neurons that detect painful stimuli, it will gravitate away mm. from the side of the box where uh, it detected that. So it's a kind of learning paradigm. It's called conditioned place preference. You're conditioning mm -hmm. or training the animal to prefer one place over another. And then with pain, it's conditioned place avoidance. You're conditioning the animal to avoid one place over the next. So this is telling us that when we stimulate these neurons, some signal is being sent to the brain that is activating a part of the brain that says, this is good for the mouse keep doing it, uh, be here, there's no danger. And maybe that internal state is something that we experience as contentment, maybe, happiness, joy. I don't know how you 
control the intensity mm-hmm. of that. That's mm-hmm. something we're really interested in. But it says it's it's a we call it a positive valence. That's another aspect of these states. States can be positive or negative. Positively valent states help animals and us approach things that are good for us or that we think are good for us. Negatively valent states make us avoid things that trigger those negatively valent states because they're probably bad for us. So there are positively valent states that mice and rats have. We just can't say whether they're feeling what we would describe as joy. Joy. Why would we deny joy to rats? David Anderson, I could sit and talk this about this stuff with you all afternoon. Um, I enjoyed very much reading the book. Um, Thank you. And uh, you do what we in the in show business rarely do, which is you uh, make profuse acknowledgement of the work of your colleagues. <laughs> I, yeah. I found that strange. But, <laughs> but aside from that, it's just that this field is seems to be rapidly moving. Uh, it is. So it must be exciting. It is exciting. And uh, it makes it more competitive, which is good for science with a capital S, <laughs> but maybe less good for individual scientists who have to worry about whether they're going to get scooped on their next discovery. But it's good because it means that if more than one lab is doing the same or a similar experiment and they get the same the same answer, particularly if they're using slightly different techniques, that can give you much more confidence that what they're looking at is real and reproducible. So, yes, it is exciting. New techniques are exploding uh, uh, practically every week. And with these techniques, we're learning more and more about how we may be able to take the information that we learn from studying mice or even fruit flies, maybe, and apply that to understanding human emotions in a way that maybe someday will allow us to develop more specific side effect free treatments of depression anxiety uh and uh and maybe even rage hmm. i like my rage david anderson's <laughs> book is the nature of the beast thank you so much for joining us today thank you harry it's been a pleasure now news of the olympic movement Produced by Jim Ebersole III. Two years out from Paris hosting the Summer Olympics, there's widespread concern over security, exacerbated by the, exacerbated by the dreadful spectacle of chaotic scenes at the Champions League final, that would be uh, soccer, at the Stade de France, Police tear-gassing frustrated Liverpool fans, including children and the disabled, was not the fault of the fans, but according to a damning fact-finding mission by two French senators, the fault of the organizers. These dysfunctions were at every level, not only during the implementation, but also during advanced preparations, said the co-chair of the inquiry. The debacle set alarm bells ringing with next year's Rugby World Cup being hosted by France, but most of all for those dealing with security issues around the Olympics. Hopefully, this serves as a wake-up call for everybody, a security source told Agence France Presse. 
The nervousness surrounding security of the Olympics led the French interior minister to set a clear roadmap for the new Paris police chief. Government source told Agence France Presse the disastrous sequence of events at the Champions League final would stick to them like a plaster up to the Olympic Games, unquote. 13 million visitors are expected, 15,000 athletes are competing. The level of anxiety over the massive security operation at the Olympics was already high. For months, the biggest security headache for the organizing committee was the opening ceremony on the Seine. On paper, the ceremony promises to be spectacular. Teams on around 180 boats traveling down the Seine through the heart of the city. On the banks, an estimated 600,000 spectators half a million of them free of charge. A massive security headache, though a great show for the global TV audience. We're not ready at all, said the government source. If a drone drops grenades onto the crowds below, we do not know how we will neutralize them, unquote. I think he means neutralize the drones, not the fans. There have been worries in the past that events such as marches might be targeted by drones. It's the magnitude of the crowd spread over six kilometers of the banks of the Seine, which is the problem, said the police source. That's accentuated by a dispute between the organizing committee and the police. The organizing committee wants to see spectators lining the entirety of the route. The police want everyone attending issued with a ticket and placed in enclosures along the river. This is a clash of two contrasting philosophies, a source from the Olympic Committee told Agence France Presse. Biggest problem for the police, a lack of available officers. According to a police source, it would require nearly 7,000 officers in the height of summer. That's all but impossible. The deficit in numbers cannot be filled by security guards, private ones. They've fallen short of hiring the 24,000 it is believed are needed for the games. We do not have the numbers, said a member of the organizing committee in mid-April. It's plain and simple, a highly placed police source says. The 24,000 agents required for the games do not exist and never will. The army will be called on to do the job. Speaking of not being ready for the Olympics, two metro lines planned, Olympically, planned to link Olympic sites to the center of Paris are not going to be finished in time. Organizers say they're taking that into account. Also, France is struggling with a shortage of bus drivers, which could cause problems when the Olympic Committee charters the fleet of coaches and buses that every game's needs. The Paralympics are drawing attention to the poor access on much French transport, and several sources in the anti-doping world told Agence France Presse that the Paris Committee was very late in starting to set up its anti-doping organization, so much so that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, is worried. And there's also the matter of inflation forcing costs up. That increase will almost certainly be borne by French taxpayers. It uh, reputedly is more than a billion dollars. But it's a movement, and we all need one every day. Ladies and gentlemen, the news was filled this week with uh, stories about two major incidents of inaction. Of course, on uh, Thursday, the uh, House 
committee looking into the January 6th invasion of the Capitol learned all the details, or a lot of the details, details of former President Trump's inactivity regarding the uh, insurrection at the Capitol, his refusal to uh, issue any call for the rioters to leave despite insistences that he do so by close advisors in the government and out. He just, he sat there and um, made a few phone calls to senators trying to get them to stall the count of the vote, the final count, the acceptance, the certification. Otherwise, he just watched the riot on television, much like during the rest of his presidency. And earlier in the week, we learned it was 376 law enforcement officials, federal, state, and local, who responded to the gun boy's presence in a schoolroom in Uvalde, Texas. They learned fairly early on he had entered the school through a door that's usually locked, and even so, they remained outside the schoolroom where he was assaulting students and teachers, waiting for keys to that room, never realizing that door was unlocked too. Standing and hanging at the end of the hall It sure looks like you're doing nothing at all Wall hanging, small ganging, slower than a crawl Understanding you're propaganding for a brand new dance style Arms doing nothing, legs doing nothing Hips not hipping, backbone not slipping Tripping the whole while Having a slow motion ball Style. You're like a copper fearing danger, or even a Texas Ranger. You're doing nothing, not even a smile. You're just dancing, Uvalde style. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. Back at the same time next week over these radio stations on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. It'd be just like preparing to host an Olympic Games before you hold one. If you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, show pal. To Pam Halstead. To Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans and to the San Diego desk all for helping in today's broadcast. And thanks to David Anderson as well. Your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, the playlist of the music heard here on, and uh, the email address for this program, all and so much more at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter, me, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.